Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas continuing on. In chapter 13, they had spent uh, the beginning of the chapter being commissioned for mission. They were commissioned to go out as missionaries and to begin uh, a series of journeys where they would spread the gospel, where they would proclaim Christ. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 13 that it was not just a group of men who commissioned Paul and Barnabas. It was not just a bunch of wise people who thought, hey, Paul's pretty smart. He's pretty, like, pretty awesome. Like, let's send him. But we see at the beginning of chapter 13 that it's really the Holy Spirit who commissions Paul and Barnabas. He tells, as they're waiting in a prayer meeting, he, the Holy Spirit works there amongst them and, and lets them know, hey, separate for me, Paul and Barnabas, for this mission. And so we've followed the rest of chapter 13, looking at the beginning of these missionary opportunities. And uh, they've had some success, and they've uh, had a bit of a run-in where, in the previous week, where they had to uh, leave the city. Uh, and so we come to our text now this morning as they make their way uh, to a city called Iconium. Now, how did they get to Iconium? We find in verse 50 of chapter 13, we read that the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet and went uh, against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So this is how they've made their way to the city that we find ourselves in this morning, Iconium. But it's important for us to see that they were faithful there in that ministry. They went out on a missionary journey and they lingered there for a period of time. And eventually what drove them out of the city was an organized attempt at persecution, an organized attempt at oppression. And it was one uh, where they felt, no doubt, the leading of the Holy Spirit moving them on as well. And as we come to the text this morning, they start fresh, they start new. But the last thing that we saw, uh, one of the last things that we see in chapter 13 is that they shake off the dust of their feet from that city. Well, what we said that meant last week was that it meant that they wanted nothing to do with them. This is something that uh, Jews would typically do upon leaving a Gentile city. They didn't want to bring contaminated Gentile dirt with them into Jewish territory, and so they would get to the edge of the city, and they would uh, shake off this dust to make sure that they left that dirty Gentile dirt in their area before they went to this clean Jewish area. Now, here we find that this is a bit ironic because what, what's being said here is this is being done to both Jews and Gentiles. It's, it's the disciples saying, we want nothing to do with your decision to reject Christ. And because of this, we are going to turn our attention to uh, the Gentiles now. But as we come to uh, chapter 14, we see that Paul and Barnabas are faithful to still follow the prescribed uh, method of gospel proclamation. They don't forsake the Jews entirely, but they do uh, present the gospel to the Jews. They are just done with the Jews uh, in this previous city. And so we come to our text this morning in Acts chapter 14. We read in verse 1, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they make their way to the city of Iconium. This is uh, about 90 miles southeast of Antioch, the second Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, the previous city that they were in. Uh, And they're still in the province of Galatia. And they make their way to the city, and they follow that same pattern uh, of gospel proclamation, that pattern that is prescribed to them, that the gospel is for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. And so they follow that pattern of preaching. Paul does his normal thing. He goes to the synagogue with Barnabas. They sit in there, and they get an audience. They proclaim the gospel. And we're told that they speak in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, this helps us understand that Paul is equally presenting the gospel to both Jews and Greeks. Because he rejected the Jews in the previous city, he has not rejected the Jews in uh, Iconium. He has preached the gospel fully to them, and he has also preached the gospel fully to the Gentile people. He's preached it to the Greeks as well. Paul understands that the gospel is for everyone, that everybody needs to meet Jesus. It's not just a certain group of people that he is really pleased with, that he's really happy with. He rejects this idea that the gospel is only for the Jews, and that's kind of what got him in trouble in the previous city. The Jews didn't like that the Gentiles were being included, and so that's how they stirred up some of these problems. But Paul is faithful to this. He's continued this message throughout all of his ministry. And in fact, we find that Paul reaffirms this in his theology in all of his letters that he writes. But one particular, the letter uh, of Romans. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11, Paul writes this. He cites scripture. He says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on in verse 17 of Romans 10, and he says this, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, or the word of God, maybe your translation says. You see, Paul understands that the gospel is for everybody, and the gospel is something that needs to be proclaimed, it needs to be shared, it needs to be put on display so that people might understand the gospel. Now, in our day and age, the way that uh, our educational system operates, at least uh, going to back to school night and being sitting with all these teachers and uh, hearing their little spiel about how things are going and how they want to do things, Pretty much all of them at this, at this uh, time in history basically have said, I'm going to teach it this way. If your kid needs to hear it a different way, let me know so then I can meet with them and kind of tailor it so that way they have understanding. Let me bring it to them so that they might have understanding. Of course, they are going to verbalize the message, but then the, the teachers are often willing to say, let me present it in a different way. Maybe you need to see this demonstrated. Maybe you need specific examples or applications. Maybe these students need to see this in a practical uh, sense. Maybe this math uh, equation that is being used is only them getting the right answer, but maybe if I put this into a a modern-day project, or maybe I help them see, here's how you can accomplish a goal with this uh, equation, then they will understand it more. 
And friends, this is the same thing that Paul is doing here. He is both proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel, but then also living it out. He's putting it on display so that others might be able to see the faithfulness of Christ through his actions, through his works. This is what God has called us to do. He has asked us, as his people, to not only be people who verbally communicate the gospel, but also to be faithful to live it out. This means that you and I have to be not only hearers of the word, but we have to be doers of the word as well. It's one thing to be able to say it, but it's another thing to put uh, actions to your words. To communicate the gospel, anybody can say, but for you and I, the Lord calls us to live out the practical implications of the gospel. He calls us out to live sacrificially. He calls us out to put Christ's love on display in the way that we give our resources, our time, our energy, our position for others. And when we do this, Christ is exalted, people meet Jesus, because it's an upside-down way of living. In our world, it's me first, let me get in line, but the way of Christ is, let me serve you. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. His life was safe. His life was secure. He, had, he was always existing with the Father forever. And then he said, you guys are in trouble, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you what you need, what you don't even know you need. And this is what God calls us to as members of the household of faith, to not only be proclaimers of the gospel, preachers of the gospel. And when I say proclaimers and preachers, I mean it's not only for you to say with words, not get up here and have like a pulpit and talk. It's not only for you to communicate verbally, but also to live out. Now, some of you guys are on the other side. Like some of you guys are like, oh, I'm totally fine with like living it out, like trying to like be good and live moral life. But like, I definitely don't want to open my mouth. You got to do that too. He says here plainly, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to be people who are sharing the gospel. The Lord will give you wisdom on how to do this. Now, look at the manner in which they spoke. Luke tells us they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, we're not told exactly what is such a way, but we're told the result of the way of their speaking, it, it produces people who believe. It produces people who believe. So what is it, how can we speak in this way, in such a way? What is it, what does it mean to, to speak in this way? Well, before we get to what it means, we need to understand what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that your persuasiveness is the make or break deal upon whether people meet Jesus. Your ability is, doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. Whether you feel qualified doesn't matter. That's not what it's getting at here. God is the one who saves people. 
God is the one who draws men and women to himself. God is the one who initiates salvation. And so it's not going to be up to you if you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to preach the gospel or I'm going to share the gospel with somebody. And like they, they don't go for it. And, and then, you know, you're like, oh, man, it's because I, I didn't do it right. That's not on you because you're not the one who's going to save them. God saves people. Now, it is your job to communicate the gospel. You should speak with clarity. You should know the gospel. You should know your own story well enough that you can say, here's where I was. You don't have to use theological terms. You need to say, once I was dead and now I'm alive. Once I was someone who was broken and now Christ has made me whole. Clarity. Understand what the gospel is, how it applies to you. Understand your story. How has Christ worked in your life? Second, your actions should match your words. If you are going to proclaim the gospel, if you're going to live out the gospel, you better have the record to match it. You better have the record to say that you are someone who has been changed. They should be able to see in your life that that you are different. You shouldn't have to make a case to be like, well, so this one time I made a good decision. That's, That's not the time. Start walking the walk today so that you have the ability to have a track record that matches your words. Third, speak with boldness. Now, where in the world do you get boldness? Because, like, is that like you got to, like, put on the eye of the tiger and pump yourself up and, like, you know, and, like, go for a run and get, like, all this, like, drink some Red Bulls and get adrenaline and, like, be ready? Is that what it's talking about? Because that's the way that we would typically be like, dang, I got to get some boldness. I got to figure out how to do this. No, that's not what he's talking about. Boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who works in the life of a believer, who gives you the desire to do this, and then he empowers you to do it. Specifically, we're told, gifting his people to proclaim the gospel. If you look back at Acts chapter 13, in verse 52, before we get to Iconium, what happens? The very last thing. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no boldness. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no desire to do these things. Without the Holy Spirit, you got nothing. You're running on empty. And so you need the Holy Spirit to give you this boldness. Now, let me remind you of two things. The Holy Spirit is God. Third person of the Trinity. Second thing, God wants people to be saved more than you do. So, If you're asking the Lord for the Holy Spirit to help you to be bold, he's not going to be like, no, that's a terrible idea. You have not because you ask not. So if you're thinking like, I got to share the gospel, but I'm not feeling bold, but I'm going to ask, but you know, I'm going to try to do this. You need to ask. You have not because you ask not. You need to have boldness. You need to have the Holy Spirit. You got to gear up before you head out. Put on that armor. Be ready to fight the good fight. Speak with clarity. Walk the walk. Speak with boldness. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds 
against the brothers. Now, here's the manner in which some opposition arises to the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are there. They're proclaiming the gospel. People are believing. Some believe, but those who did not believe the message, they weren't like, oh, you know, that's not for me, but you guys just go ahead. You know, keep doing what you're doing. You guys are fine. That's not how it went down. They weren't indifferent. They took active, uh, they actively participated in opposing the work of Paul and Barnabas. Look at what it's, how, how they describe these men. It says that these unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. They were actively persecuting Christians, both Jews and Gentiles participating in this. And the Jewish authorities, they did their best to work uh, this subversive work in the city to bring this prejudice against the early church. They wanted the rest of the city, just like in the previous city, they wanted them to see here that you should really stand in opposition against these Christians. Now, there's that practical opposition that exists here that we see in a very plain manner, but there is an opposition that is in the text that we, we, we don't really see. And the word that Luke uses here in describing this, it kind of gives us a little bit of a clue, and it helps us, helps us see this. He says that the, the unbelieving Jews, <clears throat> they stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. That word poison, it reminds, it reminds us that this is it's not only an attack from the Jews. This isn't only a human attack, but there is a spiritual component. There is spiritual warfare that's going on here. The attack is not just, oh, casual opposition, but, th- but there's a, a, a way that the enemy is working. Satan is using those who oppose the gospel as weapons in this war. There's a spiritual component, a spiritual battle that's happening. And so if the Jews are acting in opposition, it's not only that they're dealing with this group of men, but they are dealing with the enemy who's trying to prevent the spread of the gospel. Now, some people would have fled quickly upon facing opposition. It would have been like, things are getting tough, peace. Have fun, guys. I'm out. There's not really a good reason for me to stay here. But Paul and Barnabas, they recognize that there is some greater work to be done. Look at verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. We're told there's all this crazy opposition. The the Jewish leaders are poisoning the minds of the Gentiles against the church. And then it's like, so then they stayed. They stayed for like a really long time. Normally it's like things got hard and so they left. That's the way that like typically we think. But here, when things get hard, they dig in deeper. They stay. They stay where they're at as long as they could. 
despite the opposition. Now, why did they decide to stay if there was opposition? I mean, the logical thing would be like, all right, like, let's just move on to the next city, and we'll just go for like quantity. But they knew that these new Christians here, if they left, that the new Christians there were just going to be by themselves. And then the people of the city would be just be like all angry against them. And so they needed support. They knew that, if, that they couldn't get out of there quickly because there was opposition. They couldn't leave these uh, new Christians to fight this battle alone. And so they remained speaking boldly. There it is, boldness again for the Lord. They didn't want to leave the disciples, these new disciples that they had just made, until they were rooted, until they were established, until they had a base from which to fight. They had to go through basic training. They had to figure out, how do you live in a world where they want to kill you, everyone hates you? So Paul and Barnabas stayed, and they trained. They trained these men and women. Now, this is important for us to see, because the, the, oftentimes when we think about people meeting Jesus... We think it starts with like we we think it stops a lot of times with them meeting Jesus. It's like okay, great, like you you said the prayer, you did the right, you checked the right box. All right, you're in, awesome. But that's not what Jesus commanded us to do. He didn't say like check the right box. He didn't tell us to like say the prayer one time. He said make disciples, not make converts. Don't get people to hear your persuasive argument, but make disciples. Make disciples. When Jesus came on the scene and he picked up some men to follow him, he didn't say like, hey, here's who I am. What do you think about who I am? And then just left. No, he said, he found guys and he said, let's go, follow me. And he had 12 guys with him, 24-7 for three years. They went with him. They were discipled. So our job is not just to get people to see Jesus, and to make a quick decision. We want them to grow and to mature, and we want them to be able to fight on their own. We make disciples, not converts. Now, Paul and Barnabas were not alone here in the midst of this opposition. Notice it's the Lord who supports them. We find it described by Luke uh, in verse 3. Paul and Barnabas speak boldly for the Lord, and the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. These gods actively involved in their mission, in their ministry, giving uh, their, their works authenticity. He's authenticating the gospel before the eyes of these Jews and Gentiles. And then again, we come to the people taking stock. Verse 4, But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So not everybody believed. It's okay. Not everybody believed. It's God who draws men to salvation. Jesus said that he would draw men to himself in John chapter 12. It's God's work. He is the one who rescues and saves. Not by our works, but by his perfect work. In Titus 3, Paul writes, He saved us not because of works done by us, 
in righteousness, not by your moral acts, he says. He didn't save us by those things. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The gospel goes forth. People meet Jesus. They make decisions. The Lord draws men and women to himself. And then we find that there are some who do not respond. This is always a part of mission work. There are some people who hear the gospel and they reject the gospel. They don't decide to follow Christ. Right? It wasn't only, it wasn't only uh, Paul and Barnabas here. Jesus had this in his, in his ministry also. And if anybody was going to preach like the gospel perfectly, it would have been Jesus. So if people don't want to respond to him there at that moment, fine. Like, we can't be like, oh man, I'm the worst. Like, someone didn't really listen to what I was saying. People didn't listen to Jesus too. And Jesus did everything perfect. So you're fine if you, if you think you blew it. Some people hear and respond, and some people don't respond well. They reject it, and they don't, not only do they reject it, but they uh, oppose. But it's important to see here that those, the, the message that Paul and Barnabas are bringing is a message that is the truth of the gospel, and when the gospel goes forth, when the gospel goes forth, it always brings division. It always brings division. There's no middle ground. There's no, like, indifference to Christ. It always brings division. What will you do with Jesus? Their work, what they proclaimed, was full of power and authority, the truth of the gospel, and it split the city, causing division. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, Jesus told us that this would be the case. When he came on the scene, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, and also uh, in Luke and some of the other Gospels, he, we find this recorded for us, the words of Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 10, he says this, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are harsh words, crazy words. How do we reconcile this? Because like when Jesus was born, you know, there was like all the, all the fireworks and the angels and like peace on earth, goodwill to men, the whole thing. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not, that's not what's going down here. Not peace on earth. What's happening? I thought that, that was in the Bible. Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. Not between man and man. Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. And when you find peace with the peacemaker, 
It often brings division amongst mankind. Because your allegiance is to God and not to creation. Your allegiance is to the creator, not to another creation. And so Jesus tells us, if we want to follow him, if we want to know him, ultimately it comes down to it where we choose him above all other people. Against family members, against our parents, against our kids. Now this doesn't mean that you can't have a relationship with your family or your kids or you can't enjoy them. It just means that Jesus is more important than all of them and that what Jesus wants you to do is more important than what they want you to do. If their, if their idea for you is like, we want you to live close to home, we want you to like live in this area, and Jesus is like, no, I'm sending you into the mission field, guess who wins? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. If they want you to live a certain way that reflects the, their, their character or their values more than it reflects Jesus' values, Jesus wins every single time. And that's going to make other people upset because you're not giving in to their demands. You're not elevating them to the position of respect and authority that they think they deserve. But what they're doing in asking you to act um, against Jesus is they're pitting themselves against Christ. They're putting themselves in the place of God. Our allegiance is to Christ first, not to country, not to culture, not to family. Jesus first. Above all things, Christ. Verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And they continued, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So again, in this city, the religious leaders, the people of high standing in the city, the Gentiles, they all get together and they're like, we really got to get rid of these people. And so they unite together to first to mistreat them, to make it uncomfortable for them to be there. This is an organized attempt to get them out on their own. And then once they realized they weren't going to be able to do that, then they set up this execution. Like, okay, now we gotta, like, we're going to plan to stone them because like, our attempts to make things uncomfortable for them is not working. And so they hear of this, and then they move on. The longer that they're in the city, the more people meet Jesus... The longer that they have an opportunity to evangelize, the more it becomes uncomfortable for the other people of the city. The lights in the city are growing, and it's making things difficult for those in the city who do not trust Christ. And so they come, and they're presented with this opportunity each day again and again, like, do we want to give in and eventually meet Jesus, or do we want to stand against them with these religious leaders and we want to continue to persecute them? 
they, and they continued on this road, and eventually, eventually, Paul and Barnabas, they make their way out of the city. Only when they absolutely have to, when it comes down to like, we're going to definitely get killed. That's what finally moves them along. They stay as long as they possibly can. And so they eventually move on to the next city after the church has been established in Iconium. And when they make their way to the next city, they continue to preach the gospel there. They continue their work. They don't deviate. They don't say, let's take stock and figure out how we can do this again but not get kicked out of the city. They're messengers. They're ambassadors. They are bringing the message of Christ to a city. We're called to live this out. We are called to be people who proclaim the gospel, who preach the gospel with words. We're called to be people who live out the practical implications of the gospel. We want to speak the gospel with clarity. We want to walk the walk. That is something that we can grow in. We want to speak with boldness as the Holy Spirit works in our, in our heart. The Holy Spirit will help us grow in these things. But we live in a time where we don't really get to experience much opposition. One day that might be a, a reality where you're really facing the type of opposition that Paul and Barnabas are. May, right now, maybe your like, opposition is like nasty comments on Facebook uh, you know, or like somebody in person might be like a little bit like argumentative. But like we live in like a college city, everyone's argumentative here. What, right now, that's not the reality. But you need to know how do you survive? How do you live in the midst of this? Let's end here, flip over to Philippians 4. We look at Paul's life, an example from Paul's life. How do we survive in the midst of difficulty, in proclaiming the gospel, in living this out? Philippians 4, verse 10, Paul writing this to the Philippian church context, he's literally in jail, like, and not in, not in like a, like not in our like nice jail where you get TV. Like he's like in a nasty jail. Like I don't want to get too graphic. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, here's what he writes. His second word here, I rejoiced. He's he's joyful. 
So here's his mood. How in the world do you rejoice? How in the world do you make it in the midst of being in this jail? How in the world do you make it in the midst of being in this difficult circumstance? Here's what he says. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So he's like talking to Philippians. He's like, look, I'm thankful that you guys are praying for me. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You couldn't help me with what I needed. Now verse uh, 11, 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. There's a lot of things you need if like you're in jail, right? So he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? So when people like use that verse, like, that's my favorite verse, it's like, th- this is the context. Are you in jail and like you're facing like all these difficulties? Not like, you know, it's fourth and one, the fourth quarter, and like I could, I got, I'm going to stretch that extra six inches and break the goal line with the football. Like, like that's not the context for this. The context is, how do you make it in the midst of difficulty, oppression? How do you make it when things are hard? And he says, I've learned the secret. I know what it is. I know the secret. What is the secret? How do you stay strong? Well, if you look back up, he, he, he says it again and again throughout the, the book. But if you look up at verse 4, he says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. How is that the secret? How is that the secret? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, verse. How, how does that help us in the midst of difficulty and oppression? How does that help us when we're being persecuted? How does that help us be content in the midst of having lack or being in a, living in great abundance? What does it mean to have joy in the Lord? It means that Jesus is more to you than any and everything upon this earth. He is your ultimate desire, your heart's treasure, the thing that you long after more than anything else. It means that you've exalted Christ in your life to the place of Lord and Savior and King, and you are looking to Him as the source of all of your needs, all of your joy, all of your satisfaction. What this means is that when you're, when you're in the midst of difficulty, when you're in the midst of hardship, and you're trying to satisfy yourself with other things to get yourself out of that position, you're not even going to chase after those things because you know that only Jesus is the one that's going to satisfy Only Jesus is the one that's going to make you in that spot where you feel content. Only Jesus gives you what you need. Because Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. 
The joy, we're told in Scripture, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so if you want to be strong in the midst of difficulty, if you want to be strong in the midst of oppression and persecution, if you want to be strong, seek the joy of the Lord. Run to the Savior. He's the only one that satisfies. And so when Paul and Barnabas are here preaching the gospel and they're in this situation where they're being persecuted, they're being chased around, they're trying to disciple all these guys, all they're doing is finding joy in Christ because they're continually preaching the gospel, they're continuing hearing the gospel, they're standing in the gospel, they're remembering that they've been saved. And so they don't need to try to prove that they're worth something in the eyes of the church. They don't need to prove that they're worth something in the eyes of the Gentiles or the Roman leaders. They don't need to say, well, here's why it's okay for me to be here. They just stand in their position as members of the household of faith. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Look to Christ, not comfort. If you look to comfort, you will fail and you will be unsatisfied because comfort passes. Lots of things start out comfortable, but then they break. Lots of things start out well, something messes up because we live in a broken world. Jesus never breaks. Jesus is always perfect. Jesus always gives us what we need. Look to Christ. Don't look for comfort. Let's pray. Lord, Would you work in our hearts now and bring this message, Lord, to bear on our souls? Lord, we want to pursue you. We want to know you more than we want anything else. And it's hard because our hearts are often divided and, and we, want, we want these surface things, Lord. But those, those surface issues, they're really uh, just symptoms of our deeper need, our, our deeper source that we're looking to. And Lord, that's you. You're the only one that satisfies. You're the only one that we truly need. Or we want to have our satisfaction in you. We want to have joy in you. Lord, would you show us the things in our lives that we're looking to, we're trying to find satisfaction in, we're trying to find happiness in? Just show us how, how weak those things are compared to your faithfulness and your love and your joy that you want to give us. Nothing compares to you. And so, Lord, we want to learn, we want to learn in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials, we want to run to you. We want to chase after you. We want to be found hiding in the shadow of your wings. Lord, teach us to develop these, these, these thoughts, these mindsets of where we can run to in times of difficulty, in times of trouble, in times of, of, of not just trouble, but as Paul says, when things are going well, when we, have, when we have plenty and when things abound. Lord, we need to be protected from our desire to even exalt, uh, exalt these things when everything is going well. We want to be rooted and grounded in you. We want you to be our ultimate goal, our heart's desire. Work in our hearts now, Jesus, as we respond 
to your wonderful grace. We love you. Amen.